verses 1 through 9. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Let's pray. Father, how very different our stories would be were it not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that... um, You've you've sent your Son, that you gave your all, and Father, that through Jesus we have eternal life. You have given us everything that we have, and you've given us eternal riches as well. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we hear your word, that uh, anything that is said today that is not from you will be quickly forgotten. But if it is from you, that it will pierce to the dividing of the soul and spirit. Father, that you would penetrate our hearts with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Many of you will recognize these words of Jim Elliott. I grew up as a missionary kid in Ecuador where people personally knew the five young men who were brutally murdered in the Ecuadorian jungle by members of the Wadani tribe they went to serve. The five missionaries located the Wadani by air. After a few successful airdrops to deliver gifts to this tribe, they decided to attempt a face-to-face meeting. They landed on a beach that that was formed by a bend in the river, and despite some encouraging initial meetings... They were all martyred at that beach when tribesmen attacked with spears a few days later. The sacrifice of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the other three men galvanized a whole generation of missionaries who headed to foreign fields with the slain Elliott's words on their lips, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Many of the people that know the story of these five missionaries are not familiar with what happened next. After these men were killed, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and her youngest and her young daughter, and Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint, went back to the tribe that had killed their husband 
father and brother. Only the grace of God in their lives would motivate such an incredible act of forgiveness. God honored their courage, and nearly the whole tribe came to Christ, including six of the killer killing party. I met Rachel Saint on several occasions uh, as she would visit our church whenever she was in Quito. This quiet woman of the faith was really a giant of the faith. Twelve years ago, I had a chance to lead a short-term mission trip to Ecuador. Our travels took us to the jungle to visit Nate Saint's house. It was falling down at the time, although it since has been restored. You can see it in the picture. The house still has the very two-way radio that the wives would use to contact their husbands as they made flights over the jungle in search of the Wadani. As we filed silently into the house, a sense of awe came over us. Many of us started to pray. Others wept as we imagined the radio checks made in that very room. And then how the radio checks suddenly stopped when the men were killed. The legacy of their story was overwhelming. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In Luke 12, we meet a rich man. He was a diligent businessman and wanted to expand his business by building bigger barns. Then he could enjoy early retirement. Sounds like the American dream, right? But what does God say to this man? Luke 12, 20 and 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Matthew six nineteen to 21 and verse 24 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is morally neutral. The Bible does not forbid possessing money, but forbids us loving it. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In his book, Many Possessions in Eternity, Randy Alcorn points out that Jesus didn't say we can lay up treasures both in earth and heaven. He didn't say we're to lay up treasures in heaven in addition to those on earth, but instead of them. We must realize Jesus didn't tell us that we are wrong in wanting to lay up treasures. On the contrary, he commanded us to lay up treasures. He was simply saying, stop laying them up in the wrong place and start laying them up in the right place. There are two kingdoms, two perspectives, and two masters of those kingdoms. Don't spend your life investing in the wrong treasury, adopting the wrong perspective, and serving the wrong master. 
Today we'll explore what Paul has to say about grace-giving. I'm not talking about money because I'm concerned about the church budget, but because of how Scripture ties together our spiritual condition with our attitude towards possessions. Another thing I'm not talking about is tithing. A tithe means 10%. If you give 12%, you're not tithing, but you may be grace-giving. The New Testament talks about giving in two general ways. First, early believers gave to support those who were giving up their livelihood to lead the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The second general giving by the early church was to meet the needs of the poor. As Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he had in mind this second aspect of giving. But the principles of grace giving apply to both collection for the poor and the giving for the day-to-day needs of the church. Other important background information to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is that Titus had started a collection for the poor about a year earlier. This isn't for the poor at Corinth, but for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul instructed them in 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This collection had lapsed, and now Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that he was sending Titus again so that they would complete the collection before Paul arrived. Why a collection for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem? The Jerusalem church was facing severe persecution, which would have included loss of jobs and businesses and farms, and uh, as Christians were outcasts of society. So Paul was concerned about their well-being and also wanted to solidify the unity of the church body consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. So today is the last sermon in a series on spiritual disciplines. We talked about being in the Word, evangelism, observing the Lord's Day, and today we'll talk about grace-giving. Due to time constraints, we'll be looking at just a portion of chapters 8 and 9. The whole section is about grace, and it's about giving. The word grace, in fact, appears ten times in these two chapters, although sometimes it's translated into different English words. For example, the word favor that you see in chapter 8, verse 4, is the same word translated grace in verse 1. Chapters 8 and 9 are bookended by the word grace. Chapter 8, verse 1 talks about grace, as do the last two chapters of last two verses of chapter 9. So, as you can see, New Testament... Giving is all about grace. Today we'll see the model of grace giving in verses 1 through 5, the method of grace giving in verse 6, and the motivation of grace giving in verses 7 through 9. So first, number one, Paul uses the grace giving of the Macedonians as an example to follow. We're going to see eight ways in which the Macedonians model grace-giving for the Corinthians and for us. So who were the Macedonians? 
Well, Corinth, along with Athens, was a major city in the Roman province of Achaia. And north of that was the Roman province of Macedonia. And it included major cities such as Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. Both Achaia and Macedonia are in modern-day Greece. The Macedonians heard that a collection was being made by the Corinthians, and they wanted to participate. Paul now uses the overwhelming response of the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians. So to come full circle, the Macedonians were motivated by the Corinthians, and now the Corinthians will be motivated by the Macedonians. So let's see how giving by the Macedonians is a model for grace giving. Looking at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So by using the Macedonian churches as an example, Paul isn't trying to create a competition to see who can give the most. The amount doesn't matter. The spirit of the giving is what matters. The credit ultimately doesn't go to the Macedonians. Notice in verse 1 it says, The grace of God that has been given. Given by whom? Well, given by God. The generosity of the Macedonian believers was generated and sustained by God's grace. So the first principle that we can learn from the example of the Macedonians is point A on the outline there. The spiritual discipline of grace giving allows more of God's grace in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, Chris Miller mentioned author David Mathis in his sermon. In his book, Habits of Grace, David Mathis says, We cannot earn God's grace or make it flow apart from his free gift, but we can position ourselves to go on getting as he keeps on giving. So, in other words, what he's saying is practicing spiritual discipline sets us up for God to pour more grace to us. He goes on to say that cultivating habits of grace in our lives gives us access to these God-designed channels through which his love and power flow, including the greatest joy of all, knowing and enjoying Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, we read about how the believers were selling their goods and land, and they were laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Quote, for great grace was upon them all. So grace giving sets us up for God to pour out more grace to us. Do you want more of God's grace in your life? Do you want to know Jesus more? Practice the spiritual discipline of grace giving. The second way the Macedonians model grace giving is that they gave even when they were in very difficult circumstances. Point B, grace giving transcends difficult circumstances. Verse 2 starts out, for in a severe test of affliction. We know something of that affliction from other passages. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul wrote, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The Macedonians were in the midst of persecution and suffering when they gave their gift. 
Grace giving doesn't say, well, I'll give later whenever, fill in the blank, whenever I'm not being persecuted, when things settle down, when my circumstances are better. The Macedonians gave when they were in a severe test of affliction. Let's see what else we can learn about grace giving from the Macedonians. Point C, grace giving is with an abundance of joy. So, verse 2 says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, they gave joyfully. Later in chapter 9, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. So, does this mean that we should feel joy when we give? Yes, it does. Does it mean that if we don't feel joy, we shouldn't give? No, it's like anything else in Scripture. Obedience comes first. I need to participate in grace giving regardless of how I feel. But if I don't feel joy, I need to ask God why. In my own life, when I did that, God showed me that I needed to repent. My lack of joy in grace giving was the result of me holding tightly rather than loosely to possessions. The next way the Macedonians modeled grace giving was they gave in the midst of their poverty. Point D, grace giving transcends poverty. Verse 2 says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. On extreme poverty, the of the Macedonians, one commentator explains that this means they were destitute. They had hit rock bottom. No doubt the persecution they were facing for their faith aggravated their poverty. The radical poverty of the Macedonian Christians gave them a special empathy with the poor of the church in Jerusalem, just as their experience of persecution helped them identify with the churches in Judea. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The application of this is simple. Poverty is not an excuse for not participating in the spiritual discipline of grace giving. It's not an excuse. Well, I'll start giving to the church when I make more money. How many times have you heard that? How many times have I said that? How many times have you said that? Grace giving transcends poverty. Continuing in verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Point E, grace giving is generous. Do you know what a paradox is? Paradox is something that on the surface looks like a contradiction, but it isn't. So in verse 2, we see the twin paradoxes of joy in the midst of affliction and generosity in spite of persecution and poverty. The Christian life is full of paradoxes. Luke 17.33 says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Matthew 20.16 says, So the last will be first and the first last. To give... To get, we must give. Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. The Macedonian example is there for us. 
Invest generously in the right treasury. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Grace giving is generous. Another way the Macedonians exemplify grace giving is in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So point F, grace giving is sacrificial. The Macedonians gave more than they could afford to give. They gave sacrificially. The pastor at our church in Atlanta would often say, God may intend to give through you what he never intended to give to you. If you're given a raise at work, don't automatically increase your standard of living. It may be that God wants you to increase your giving. It could be that the money you have to buy that new thing or experience experience was given to you to give away. God may intend to give through you what he never intended to give to you. Grace giving is sacrificial. Point G, grace giving is a privilege. Verse 4 says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonians begged Paul for the favor of sharing in this ministry. The word favor is the same word that's translated grace in verse 1. The poverty-stricken, persecuted church, churches in Macedonia beg for the privilege of being allowed to help meet the needs of other believers. The eighth and final example of grace giving is in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul was surprised at both the amount that was given and that they surrendered themselves to the Lord and to Paul for the promotion of the collection. Their giving involved giving other persons as well as their possessions. When it says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, it's not talking about time, but priority. First and foremost, they dedicated themselves to the Lord and His work. Secondarily, they put themselves at Paul's disposal to help in any way he might choose. Giving yourself to God and giving of your possessions are not to be separated. You can't give money instead of surrendering surrendering yourself to God. And you can't participate in grace giving if you don't give yourself to God first and foremost. Grace is an act of worship and can't be separated from the heart. Sam Houston was a rather colorful figure in the Texas Revolution. And he served as the first and third president of the Republic of Texas when it was an independent country. But when he was saved, Houston was a changed man, no longer coarse and belligerent, but peaceful and content. One author describes the change. The day came for Sam Houston to be baptized, an incredible event in the eyes of those who knew his previous lifestyle and attitude. After his baptism, Houston stated that he would like to pay for half the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, His simple response was, my pocketbook was baptized too. Grace giving is an act of worship and can't be separated from the heart. 
Point H, grace giving um, is an act of worship. You'll see that on your outline. The Macedonians gave themselves first to God, and that's why they saw giving as a privilege. That's why they gave sacrificially, generously, with joy in the midst of poverty and persecution. And God used grace giving to sanctify them and help them look more like Jesus. In in the first five verses, Paul gives the model of grace giving. In verse six, we can see point two, the method of grace giving. Verse six reads, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace also. The point of verse 6 is, okay, Corinthians, complete what you began with Titus as the facilitator of this collection. This points us back to the start of the collection that we uh, looked at earlier in 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. What is the method of grace giving? It's systematic giving. Some may choose to give weekly. Others may give as they're paid, such as biweekly. Practically, it's difficult to give generously, sacrificially, with joy as an act of worship, transcending poverty or difficult circumstances in a way that allows for more of God's grace in our lives if we give sporadically. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Number three, the motivation of grace giving. Verse seven says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We know from 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church was a gift-laden church. Paul confirms that the Corinthians excel in many areas and gives five specific examples of their gifting. They have faith. They have eloquence in declaring the truth through speech. They have knowledge or spiritual perceptiveness. They have zeal or wholehearted enthusiasm and earnestness. And they're loved by Paul, or as some translators put it, the love that is in you implanted by us. So just as the Corinthians excel in all of these areas, Paul now asks them to excel in giving. Having received grace from God leads to expressing grace to others. Point A, the first motivation of grace giving is that God has extended grace to us. We give that which is temporal or temporary because God has richly given eternal gifts to us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We want to participate in the spiritual discipline of grace giving because God has extended His grace to us. The next motivation for grace giving is found in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So point B, grace giving is proof of our love for God. Commentators say that the word prove there means put to the proof or approved by testing and discover to be suitable through examination. 
It implies an expectation that the testing will produce a positive outcome. The Macedonians had already given proof of their love for fellow believers, and now the Corinthians were called to do the same. Grace-giving is a barometer of your spiritual life. Your bank statement says a lot about what you value. In his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Alcorn says, A study of Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler, the poor widow, the rich fool, and many other biblical passages helps us understand that our perspective on and handling of money is a litmus test of our true character. It's an index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money tells a deep and consequential story. It forms our biography. So in verse 8, also tells us that the spirit of grace-giving is not by way of command. If Paul commanded the Corinthians to give, the voluntary nature of grace-giving would be compromised, and he would be taking from them the opportunity to be generous. Their voluntary giving is a way for them to show the genuineness of their love by emulating the Macedonians. Notice that in verse 3, it said that the Macedonians gave, quote, of their own accord. So, what about tithing? Well, as we talked about, the word tithe means a tenth. In the Old Testament, there was not one tithe, but three. The Levite tithe supported the priests and the Levites. The festival tithe provided for religious festivals. The poor tithe was given to support the poor, orphans, and widows, and was given every third year. Paul is not commanding the Corinthians to tithe, which was mandatory under the law. So, how much should New Testament believers give? Galatians 3.24 says that the law is a guardian or a tutor to lead us to Christ. Think of it as our training wheels. If the Old Testament commanded a tithe, how much more should New Testament believers give? Take off the training wheels. I've heard New Testament believers say, <clears throat> well, since they're not commanded <clears throat> to tithe, they're justified to give less than 10% or nothing at all. In my opinion, that's just an excuse, and they're not exercising New Testament grace-giving at all. We live in one of the richest nations on earth, in the most prosperous time the world has ever known. If we're giving less than a tithe, something may be terribly wrong. In verse 9, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> in verse 9, Paul now appeals to the ultimate motivation of grace giving, the supreme and purest motivation why the Corinthians should excel, excel in the grace of giving. Verse 9 says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul speaks of how Christ gave himself voluntarily and sacrificially for our benefit. He is the supreme model to be followed in giving. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, denied count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As believers, we have experienced spiritual enrichment through Christ. We have salvation from the wrath of God, restoration of relationship with God and peace with God. We have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have experienced the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and we know his faithfulness. Point C, the motivation of grace giving is the example of Jesus. His poverty, his sacrifice, his emptying of himself resulted in enduring riches for us. Now, I'd like to talk for a minute to those of you who are saying, I want to give sacrificially, generously, with joy in the midst of poverty and have God use grace giving to sanctify me and help me look more like Jesus. But I'm living with the consequences of poor choices I've made in the past. Or you may be saying, I wish I had more knowledge about budgeting and other tools to help me be disciplined with money. If you find yourself there, let's set up some time to talk in private. There are churches in the area offering classes such as Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Crown Financial Ministries also has excellent materials. There's a couple in our church who are certified trainers with another Christian ministry out of the UK that specializes in debt counseling. There's no shortage of practical how-to resources. Let's get together. Let me also say that I'm still growing in the grace of giving. I'm on the journey with you. And after three extended periods of unemployment, I can tell you that God is faithful. Talk with anyone who practices grace giving, and you will hear them talk about the faithfulness of God. For some, God has given peace regarding finances and possessions. Uh, For others that never had enough when they didn't give, suddenly find that they have sufficient when they do give. The circumstances of the stories are different, but the story of God's faithfulness is always present. So, whatever happened to the Corinthians collection for the poor? Well, in Romans 15, 26, Paul says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the collection made by Titus was completed and mentioned alongside the contribution made by the Macedonians. I started today by telling you about Jim Elliott, one of the five men who gave their lives for the gospel. They were speared by the ones they went to reach with the love of Jesus. Jim Elliott was willing to sacrifice... What separated him from others, though, was not that he didn't want treasure. A lot of people want that, but he wanted real treasure. There are two treasuries, two perspectives, two masters. Are you investing in the right treasury? Are you serving the right master? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, we pray that uh, you will help us in the grace of giving. 
Father, we recognize that this, like everything, comes from you. And so, Father, we we ask you that you would uh, be at work in our lives and in our midst as we uh, see from your word what you would have for us. Thank you for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.